Hello and welcome to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. My name's Charlotte, I'm Patient Advocacy Manager here at Leukemia Care. As we approach the end of the year, especially another one dominated by the COVID-19 pandemic, the team here at Leukemia Care have been reflecting on how many patients experience isolation throughout their leukemia diagnosis, but especially so during the festive period and also during COVID-19. So this month, I spoke to Nick, who was CLL. CLL patients remain some of the most vulnerable to COVID-19, so many patients are still shielding or reducing their contact with others. So we spoke with Nick about how a CLL diagnosis is isolating in itself, and then how COVID-19 has compounded that for him. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Hi, Charlotte. Um, uh, hi, everybody. It's a real pleasure to join you. Be gentle with me. Um, <laughs> Looking forward to having a chat. A lot of water gone under the bridge, hasn't it, since we last did this? Yeah, and, uh, yeah. We're living very differently, so it'll be, um, I'll let you pick my brains. We, I was listening to the last podcast you did with us just before we joined this afternoon. It was March 2021. We were, <laughs> we were talking about the end of shielding, which will become rather ironic when we get further ah. into the conversation, I'm sure. So... Conscious that um, not everybody will know who you are, Nick. So I wonder whether you could just talk a little bit very briefly about how you came to be diagnosed with leukemia, what type of leukemia you have and and how that's impacted on you over time. Yeah, sure. Maybe it's something that I haven't spoken about for a while. I guess put things in perspective um, because you can hear my voice. I think I'm now 59. Yeah. Wow. Where did that come from? And I was diagnosed when I was 47, 48. Yeah. Um, So a lot of water under the bridge then. I was at the time. And and that's one thing is that I live with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, type of leukemia. But that doesn't define who I am. But it's massively changed how I have to live. It's opened doors and closed many. So, yeah, I was... At 40, late 40s, typical age when things can go wrong for a man that doesn't necessarily moderate his intake on life. Yeah? So I was fully enjoying life to the max, building, big burly guy. You know, anyone who doesn't know me, I'm six foot six, and I've always been one to lead by example. So if you weren't working with, with me on the ridge tiles of a roof on a Friday, you certainly weren't going to get any overtime on a Saturday. You know, that was my kind of mentality. And we worked hard and we played hard. And of course, I didn't moderate my intake. I didn't know that I was eating far too many wrong things. And I didn't know that I wasn't necessarily policing myself. So one evening at the age of 47, 48, lying in bed, as asleep, it was the middle of the night, I sat bolt upright, all of a sudden I felt that something had died in my head. Yeah. And I woke my partner and I said, something's died in my head. What do you mean? What do you mean? And I had a stroke and I then had an issue with a stroke. So that was quite traumatic because you spent a long time vomiting and everything goes wrong and the GP didn't properly administer it. And I ended up isolated in the bed for two days and, um, this is all really tra- tra- traumatic, and, I, and I'd never been medicalised before. And two, two days later, I was rushed to hospital when they identified I'd had a stroke, and then I got admitted to the stroke unit, which was, if anyone's ever seen the film, One Flew Over a Cuckoo's Nest, it's a little bit like that. It's not a very pleasant experience for all that are there. 
And you go through a healing process, you're medicalised, you've got to reintroduce yourself to being able to join society and actually not be agoraphobic. And some sharp-eyed radiologist when doing a Doppler exam on my neck, which is when they measure your blood flow to check everything's working okay. And, and part of the reason they were trying to find out why I had a stroke, all of a sudden this sharp-eyed radiologist noticed some unusual blood flows and then they spotted some lymph nodes and that took their eye off of the ball and for want of a better word it hit the fan yeah and everything went in a different direction all of a sudden there was panic and it was three months before christmas and then everything went in a direction you could feel of alarm and they forgot about the stroke might have had the stroke all of a sudden, I was tugged and pulled in every different direction. And I think part of the reason that started me in I want to help others was, was because of that. I ended up having a lymph node removed. I had them aspirated. I got tested for every known infectious condition to man to find out what the problems were. And at the time, I was also living with side effects at the time, which they put down to this potential thing. And like many, many people today, I, the longer it took, the more time I spent online. And I think I'd narrowed down my own diagnosis to one or two conditions before they gave it to me. And then I was finally called into hospital um, when I went into the room and there sitting in the, in the room was a nurse in a dark blue uniform. And I knew full well what that meant. Yeah? So I was then given a diagnosis of leukemia. That hit me like a brick. Um, young family, what do I do? How do I say that? How do I talk to them about this? How do I take this home? Um, mind you, my partner at the time and I had spent most of the time together on the computer trying to work out what was going on. So we kind of had, had an idea with that. But they didn't know what kind of leukemia. So I'd kind of been diagnosed incorrectly. I hadn't been given the routine blood test that, that you know, would, would have identified me as a potential leukemia patient. They went round the houses first, put me through health for six months. So I was already in a state before I was diagnosed, which made me a very difficult patient. Um, and then, which I still am, uh, I'm a boring patient now. I'm just a difficult person. That, that probably not changed. Yeah. But um, I can talk forever, Charlotte. You know what I'm like. So, so then from, from that point on, it was during an investigation into why was I experiencing all of these symptoms in a bone marrow biopsy that this little fella came up beside the bed because I'd caused murders. <laughs> the, poor, the, poor, the poor registrar, I mean, before I went in there, the haematologist said to me in, in, um, in the miners' hospital, said, Nick, you need to take your cordless in with you. And I thought he was joking. He said, yeah, because they're going to need it to get through your bones. And I thought he was joking. But the poor registrar, when he was giving me that the first time, maybe wasn't had the best technique and I had the hardest bones. So it was a bit traumatic. Things went wrong, unfortunately, for both of us. And they called the boss. And that was the start of my journey with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Very interesting professor came beside the bed. I had no idea how he fitted into things. And he just looked at me and he said, I know what you've got. You've got CLL, stage B with B symptoms, and I looked at him and said, what's that? I wasn't sure then. I was thinking to myself, CLL, does that mean I haven't got cancer? And then I got the diagnosis, um, which 
I found as a person, I'm sure everybody does, really counterintuitive. But you're diagnosed with a condition that <laughs> may or may not need treating, but if it's treated, treated, treatments will become less effective with time. And we're not going to do anything. And that I found quite hard to deal with, which I think most patients living with a leukemia that's chronic do. And I was given a load of information to take home with me. And I was probably given a lot more than I give credit to the care team. But, you know, I think you don't remember a lot of diagnosis. So I think I, like many people, just to give you an idea of who I was, I carried on with gardening and doing my other stuff because I was recovering from a stroke. And um, I picked it up about three months later when I decided I had to talk to my kids. And that's when I decided I was ready to get more involved in living, learning to live with this condition and the challenges. I didn't know how I would talk to my daughters about how do I tell my daughters that I've got a leukemia that's incurable. Yeah, you didn't know much about what leukemia was, it sounds like. No, no, I, I, was, I was like everybody else. Um, you know, what I'd seen and what I'd seen were, you know, boarding poor children, going through treatment, thought it was... Uh, and not only that, what made it really difficult for me at the time, of course, you try not to pay attention to what your kids are watching on telly um, because you don't need to police the telly. But I'd had to, I was forced to sit through episodes of Tracy Beaker at the time, you know, on the couch. And uh, one of the girls had leukemia and was dying, and it was a really traumatic experience. Just at the moment I got diagnosed with it, it was like, how do I tell my daughter about this? And that's when I thought I'd better reach out, you know? Um, no, I didn't know much about it at all. I hadn't, I'd never really been that involved. Um, you know, I'd, I'd had injuries, accidents, need to be patched up and put together many times in my life, but never needed a doctor never needed to be connected. So I didn't really understand a lot of this. I've always been scientifically interested in things. I've always been bio biology oriented. It was my favourite A-level, but no, didn't really have a clue. Yeah, I think you've... Well, we're coming together today to talk a little bit about how leukaemia can make you feel isolated and the impact of COVID upon that. And mm. I think you've picked up one of those things that can make CLL in particular isolating is the the rarity and relative rarity and to other cancers and um the whole misunderstanding about chronic is that fair to say is do you, is the whole misunderstanding about different types of cancer or lack of knowledge of different types of cancers contributing to isolation in patients like yourselves there were many things and they become part of you but at the time they're hard to become part of you not only don't you understand the issue is chronic. The issue is incurable. And the, the difference between what is acute. So when you've decided to sort of come out and let people know about it, you don't know what you can divulge and what you can't. You don't want it to define you. You don't like being vulnerable. But you almost feel, so, you know, time is the greatest um, prognosticator as a, as a patient. And as a doctor, according to a few professors I know. Um, but friends didn't understand why you weren't being treated, why you weren't going through all of this hell that leukaemia patients go through, according to what everybody believes. Why weren't you having a transplant? Why weren't you in touch with your brothers to, to get a match? All of these things. So you, you kind of feel a little bit isolant, isolated, fraudulent, because you're just the same person you were 
Um, I was a fit person anyway. Well, I wasn't. I was. I, I, I know we've got to be mindful of how we use the word fat, but I was a fat, thin person because I didn't know that at the time. I had lots of fat on the inside, but very little fat on the outside. Uh, yeah. Um, sorry, I'm just putting in context who I was at the time. So, yeah, it was quite isolating. How do I understand this to communicate it? And how do I take on board the precautions? And that was the other thing. At the point of diagnosis, you, you got given conflicting information. You have a perception of what everything is. You are a bit isolated. It's like we know, you know, getting a diagnosis of cancer is an isolating experience because nobody understands, you know, um, so I think my life started to open up when I finally reached out to the first charity that I did and I connected with others living with the condition. Yeah. Um, it was at that stage then that, that life began to change. And to be honest, you know, I, I think what we've gone on 11 years since my life is richer for the diagnosis, believe it or not. I mean, no diagnosis of cancer is a good thing. Yeah. But the worlds that have opened up, and the under self understanding um, are pretty remarkable, you know, from that point of view. But you, you evolve with time, and it takes time. Time is the thing. Understanding chronic, understanding time, understanding why things aren't done at the rate you think they should be done. You know, one of the first things you've got to understand is the counterintuitive thing: this watch and wait, inactive monitoring. Uh, whatever you want to call it, needs time for those, you know, your health care professionals and you to understand how stable your condition is. Because what you don't understand is you're not told. You're kind of told that you things might get worse or things might not get worse and you may need treatment or you may not. And it's incurable. All this is counterintuitive. But you, you, did, you don't know where you sit in all of that. So it's all a bit confusing. Many people will be lonely with leukaemia this Christmas. We at Leukaemia Care want to be there for each and every person feeling isolated, whether that be following a new diagnosis, having treatment, coping with active monitoring, or shielding from COVID-19. Help us be there throughout the year by donating this Christmas. It's easiest by text. To donate £5, text Christmas Gift. that's X-M-A-S-G-I-F-T, all one word, Christmas gift to 70560. Text will cost your donation amount plus one standard network rate message and you'll be opting in to hearing more from us. If you'd like to donate but don't wish to hear more from us, please text Christmas gift no info or one word instead. You can also donate online by visiting leukemiacare.org.uk or call our team on 01905 755 977. Thank you. And you've already talked about one of the ways you can counter isolation of a CLL diet or isolation resulting from a CLL diagnosis is reaching out for support. And I think there's lots of places like leukemia can have so many different ways you can reach out to other people. And I wondered whether you had any views of what you find most useful as a patient which type of connecting with others you know is it online for you is it being able to see people in in person when we can which, which type is you know your preferred if you like it's a strange one isn't it because we're talking about living as a patient and living with the circumstances of the diagnosis and also 
reflecting our knowledge that we have. So I, I think one of the first things that always comes to mind is our own surveys of all of us patients and everybody that contributed to the surveys when we've looked at the information question, you know, what's more damaging, good information or no information? Part of the problem I had was I, I got prolific. I went online, I went everywhere, and I got information and I've found a few people that championed things. So what helped me were peers, online peers, um, who were prepared to have the patience to understand my appetite. And I took on board a lot of the raw information, and that did me a lot of harm. I felt like I had to be re-diagnosed again. I went online and I spent time on the wrong side of the pond and their med medical protocols and access to drugs and treatments were a little bit different. So in the short, that raised my levels of confusion and hysteria. The information wasn't good quality and there wasn't a lot of information about. There was information, but it was really quite complicated. And there was this thing within the community where everybody had to be really complicated in scientific and everything else. And, you know, it, it was really did make things quite hard to manage at a personal level. So the first thing that really happened that made a difference was peer support. Support groups, being able to attend and meet other people and just being able to hang out with people and have a cup of tea that you didn't have to explain anything to, that understand, that know where you are. I think they, you know, I, I remember diagnosis, actually. I was given um, the phone number of one of our sister charities. And it was actually Lymphoma Action at the time. Uh, they weren't Lymphoma Action, then they were called something else. And I thought, why do I want to phone them? I haven't got a lymphoma. See, I didn't understand what my diagnosis was, that I was diagnosed with a condition that sits in both camps, lymphoma and leukemia. And they actually were probably one of the, there were very few groups that had resources to, to reach out to. I mean, Blood Cancer UK at the time didn't, didn't do patient support. They did literature and science and lymphoma I can't remember what they're called there because we've all got these different names and former action there. So there's CLL support. And I didn't know about leukemia care. Yeah, I didn't know about leukemia care at that time. So, but if I reflect back, you know, I I picked up on, I made calls to a few people that were in the know. I connected online with peers that I knew had great experience. And they kind of helped bring me around to a level of understanding. And the other thing not to forget is you soon know who your friends are. Yeah? So it's important that you do look at your own safety net. I mean, the, and, and you've got to talk to somebody. But one of the hardest things I found was dealing with general practice and GPs because I, they, I felt they even isolate me even further because they had very little understanding because of the rarity. And I was, it's always stuck with me, kiss a lot of frogs. I know it's a female saying, isn't it? Because... One of the um, nursery rhymes or nursery stories, somebody had to kiss a frog that turned into a prince, yeah? But I had to kiss a lot of frogs, you know? I, I went through GPs like a dose of salts, you know? <laughs> Until I found one, um, you know, um, that was prepared to work with me and, and help me understand and, and, and look at things. But it, it's a difficult thing. I think it comes in time, uh, one step at a time, do what you're comfortable with. And if you want information, what I learned quite quickly was reach out to where the reliable information was. Yeah? And we didn't have all of these resources then. Like, you know, if I looked at leukemia care, you know, we've got a helpline staffed by clinical nurse specialists, staffed by supporters. We've got WhatsApps, a podcast that we're chatting on at the moment to share experience. We've got 
local and regional and disease-specific support groups. Um, we run regular edu educational webinars. If we're all back in person, we have all of these opportunities to get get close to each other. And then we've got an advocacy group. I mean, advocacy advocacy didn't really exist 11 years ago, you know, um, or not in, in this level. So you know, you've got advocates that can help speak up for you, uh, help identify your own challenges, even if you can't identify what they are, and then help you solve them. So. It's a gradual process. It's really hard being a roughly tufty bloke, suddenly getting diagnosed with something that makes you vulnerable. Yeah. And um, that can work against you. I think if we look at it ourselves, the majority of people that charities connect with tend to be women. Um, those that reach out tend to be women. So, yeah. So, would you say to any men listening with leukemia to reach out specifically, talking to them? <laughs> well, I, I, I would say that definitely because bottling things up, is not a good thing because what I didn't allude to was when I was diagnosed, they forgot to look into why I had a stroke. Yeah, I had no idea what getting old was like, and I had no idea what CLL was like. So when all these symptoms started to increase, and, and everybody put them down to CLL, it's a, it's a funny thing. Is it's when I went at the stage, so I'd gone through all of this, where I didn't have the information, and I probably got really righteous about it all, and I probably had all the information that I needed, but I just didn't get it in the right way. So I decided I want to get involved after after reaching out to a charity to find out how to deal with my, talk to my children and how to cope with things. I then decided to get more involved. And I, I was actually getting on a train from Wales to Bristol twice a month to do a cancer support course in Macmillan. I was having heart attacks on the train. I never knew it. I'd been toughing it out, having, uh, you know, near heart attacks, uh, serious angina until I did have an MI that needed emergency intervention and um, was blues and tubes to hospital to have an, an immediate intervention. And uh, that was because I was a bloke. You know, I was experiencing all these things and I didn't really talk to anybody about it. And I think mentally as well, you're carrying things, you know, you doubt it. Everything you believed, you all of a sudden doubt and you've got, a role you feel you're a bloke you know um so there were highs and lows in all of this and um yeah it was great to have some peers so that was i think that's the way to do it it, it all takes time but over time i found people so like for example one of the things you brought up earlier we didn't have a buddy scheme back then we've got a buddy scheme now and that would be invaluable because i made buddies online you know, without being, wanting to alarm people, some of the, my greatest buddies are no longer with us, but I made them 11 years ago and they're already a long way into their journey. But, you know, I did have peers that I was able to engage with and that's how I found my way around it. But it, it is hard. It is hard for us to talk about these things. Right? Yeah. So we've talked a lot about how Sierra is isolating, but it sounds as if it also brought you a community of people you would never have otherwise met. It's opened many doors. It's um, allowed, allowed me to explore myself and allowed me to work with others and allowed me also to join with others to build on what others have done before. And, you know, so many of the community, although small, I remember just reflecting on it. When I first spoke to somebody in the community that helped support the community, just reminded me and said, listen, nothing's insurmountable just remember that whoever you're talking to they're just people and it's a very small community so you will get to know everybody you know and i've now got more 
associate friends and I'm more involved in a fulfilling life and I feel better in being a person because of the diagnosis, because of the time spent in that. But I do feel a little bit lonelier because whether that's an old man thing or whether that is because the disease itself can be isolating and COVID has made that difference at the moment. My belief of what CLL was, and that was because we didn't have a lot of treatments then either, was, you know, my worry was, will I get to see my daughter finish school? Um, so last month, well, she's got a first, she received her first from university and she graduated in psychology, probably psychology because of me and, and a few of the other things. And I invented that. But, you know, um, my life's immensely richer. And I don't let the disease define me i think you've got to be the whole person you are just find your feet and find you so that was the other thing just reflecting it take taken two years to it took two years to be comfortable again in my own skin you know and then be able to live as a person again with cll rather than cll with a person so cll is obviously a disease of the immune system which makes you more vulnerable to infection anyway but what did that mean for you like living with it let's put it into context when i was first diagnosed I wasn't getting any infectious complications. I'm guessing at that time my immunity was fairly good. Then over time I realised, you know, I had progressive CLL, um, symptomatic CLL developed, so I was obviously going to need, I was in that bucket, and I started to get bizarre infections, reactions to insect bites, subcutaneous cysts, um, more colds, but apart from that, not a lot. The first really isolating experience I had was actually going into my first treatment. That was going into treatment with um, chemoimmunotherapy. You know, that maybe pancytopenic. In other words, all of my blood levels were up the creek and I had no real immunity. I was very neutropenic. And at the time I was going through a change in life, a separation, a divorce, selling a house. And I was on my own with my guardian angel, who's, there he is beside me in his cage at the moment, um, Thor, my dog, my chemo dog. That was the first real experience. I was mindful even then that I was more susceptible to getting colds and everything else. And I knew that a high proportion of patients do succumb to some of these opportune infections, but it didn't really affect me that much. And then I had chemoimmunotherapy that kind of accelerated things. And um, when I relapsed from that, I then had to have, you know, start another treatment, which is great. Life continues. I'm just me, just with a bit more immune compromise. Then COVID came up. Because I really do believe that we had, if you were time served as a patient, then you had some of the equipment to cope with it. And you were able to give lessons to others. And I thought, well, we could be quite altruistic here in a society. Everybody's going to follow the rules together and we can help each other. And that's how we went into this. We rolled our sleeves up. We didn't think it was going to last that long. And therefore we weren't worrying at the time about what happens to people that are new to this and get diagnosed in a period of high risk, not hysteria, isolation, aren't able to associate with peers and go through the adjustment that I just described and, and all of that. So, so the theory was, is, yep, being prepared with all of this before, it's just another version of, of isolation. Because my immunity had dropped to such a level, it was after my f- 
first treatment that I started to need in, in intravenous or subcutaneous immunoglobin supplements just to give me some additional support that, you know, the charity, I was one of the first probably to, to have a flexible working arrangement in the charity. Yeah. Um, you know, the charity allowed me to work from home in the winter so that I didn't catch every bug that was going on in the office. And I found that actually really isolating. Yeah, that was the most isolating thing ever because everybody else is working in, in a different world. Everybody's face-to-face and nobody's actually digitally orientated, although we were within the office. But I wasn't prepared, and I don't think any of us have been prepared for, for this last 18 months. It does begin to wear. It's the hardest period ever for those that do have an immune challenge or immune compromise and are high at risk because... That thought we had when we first went into it was, great, everybody's got rules. Everybody's following rules. We've got a strategy. It might be over the top. It might be, you know, hitting the the walnut with a sledgehammer. But at least you're safe. You feel safe. And if we do step out of that bubble, everybody's following rules. We've never really been released from that. It was like our webinars last year when we were talking about summer, the levels of infection in the community got so low. So we started to live again. And then when the rules were taken away after the last, you know, after the the winter of last year, we never really got that back. And then the challenge, as as everybody said, is that when you step out your front door now, you know, I, I still now vigilantly, because there's such levels of infection in the community, I still follow the same protocols I did when shielding in its truest form existed. So I'm effectively shielding, yeah. But I feel less safe because when I was able to go outside, even when there were higher, you know, when I say not go outside, but associate a bit because other people were following rules to protect others, but nobody is now. So it is quite lonely in that respect. And your family begin to feel it and your endurance levels. You, I mean, it's hard, isn't it? We go into winter. At the beginning of winter, we've got high energy levels because we've, you know, the summer has built it into us. But we already know, don't we, in February that the SAD, the low vitamin D levels and things like that really impact on you. And I think my personal level at the moment, I think this is a very going to be a very difficult winter for, for a lot of us because at the moment, many of us are vaccinated and some of us are in, get less of a response than others. And our family are struggling. Christmas is coming. You know, my daughter's got a plan at the moment where she's going to isolate for seven days and come up before Christmas to spend a pre-Christmas, which, listen, we're used to doing that. I mean, when we went through separation, her mother and I, I had two Christmases, yeah? And, and, and I'm used to that as well. When I went through chemotherapy, my, my best pals, we organised Christmas at the end of January when I was in, in a good place. So that's our only get-out clause because she's worried, she stresses about it all the time, that if she was to enjoy her Christmas, she wants to come and spend Christmas with me before she has to associate with everybody else and therefore levels of risk. And I, and I had a phone call from my best pal two days ago who, who, you know, our plan, we always, he even has gone as far as buy a camper and he brings his camper up and parks it in my car park outside. Um, but levels are so high in the community at the moment. He said, listen, Nick, I can't risk it. I'm putting it on hold. We're going to have to do this because we go walking the dogs in the hills when there's nobody about. You know, we're miles away from anybody else, and we we have this external kind of relationship. But that's now just been knocked in the head until till February. Yeah. So 
I'm talking to you here through a screen, talking to everybody that's listening, and I'm sure I'm mirroring what lots of others are feeling. We're coming into Christmas, a time then, yeah, I was burly bloke. I love going down the pub, knocking back more than one too many jars, yeah? And I loved, you know, getting in the thick of it, Halloween and, and all of this. And it's beginning to take its toll. And I, and I think we've got to work together to find ways to keep awareness of the community that are now invisible. Um, you know, that's the other thing. I think people must find it disheartening. We don't exist anymore. Uh, you know, I know we've got this increased focus now on the risk element because everybody's looking at Europe and we're seeing another surge coming and they've got lockdowns happening there. But, you know, I'm going to use the word, the invisible shielders. We are such a small group. For some reason, we seem to have fallen through the gaps of society now and society's behaving. And I think I mentioned to you earlier that if I actually stopped somebody in the street because they peed me off, for want of the, the, the right word, you know, I live rurally. I'm going for a walk with my dog. I'm not wearing a mask because I deliberately avoid people. But I'm actually walking down a road where there's no cars moving on it and there's three or four people walking down the road. And three or four months ago, people would, they were street signs, keep two metres apart, be mindful of others. These people virtually barged me off of my own side of the road on the path when they had the whole world to walk around me. I had to have a word with them. You know, I had to say, well, listen, I know COVID restrictions have been lifted, but did they lift manners as well? You know, so it, it was good to actually be able to have that conversation because that's a proper conversation. But that's probably the first conversation I've had with anybody outside of outside for a long time. It's great. You go for a walk and you can talk to people at a distance. Can't go in the shops at the moment. Can't go indoors. Can't guarantee that places have been ventilated. And you can't guarantee that other people haven't been spreading the germs around that could be really dangerous to you. So anyway, I'm great. I've just given you a great monologue, Charlie. Well, yeah, you've answered all my questions. <laughs> yeah. But, well, I was just going to summarise because I felt I was really conscious today. We want to focus on isolation again this Christmas as a, yeah. as a charity. But I was conscious of if we start talking about shielding again, it's going to be a repeat of the last podcast. And I'm totally not here to do a repetitive podcast for our listeners. I'm sure we've got some who listen keenly every month. And But I think you've really summed it up there. You you know, we talked in March 2021 about shielding, lifting. And I listened to a tiny bit of the podcast in preparation. And the bit that caught me was you said oh, you're really looking forward to summer and all that. And, I, yeah. and you've really summarised that, that you haven't had that chance to to let go but everyone else has and that I don't know I just can't imagine how that must feel to you for to see everybody well, I else feel just really fortunate I feel really fortunate it's it's those that are trapped under the same roof not because they wish to be because they they love their family but they're they're trapped under the same roof if they haven't got a garden and they're in an urban area yeah uh, or a metropolitan area sorry and they can't go out in the streets and there's or People have been forced into the workplace against and put, having to put themselves at risk to f- support families or their family members are going to school or they're teaching at school or they're having to go work and then they're having to navigate this situation. So I feel like I did easy. I did get summer this year. Yeah. So I, I told a bit of a porky pie there. I mean, what I did was is I discovered Amazon <laughs> and I discovered digital connection. It's like, 
wow, you know, I've got all these digital connections now, smart telly, I'm connected to the, you know, the internet and I have Amazon Prime that now gives me TV that I never had and I get my deliveries within a day. So that was great because I've got loads of seed delivered in the winter and I've got loads of treat myself and loads of dahlias and different things. And my house became a greenhouse ready for spring. And, you know, I threw myself into my garden and everybody just watched the happy gardener at the top of the hill there never spoke to anybody and just enjoyed sitting in his garden with a glass of wine, looking at his flowers, you know, and going for a walk in the hills with his dogs, keeping away from it. So I had it relatively easy. So I did get a summer. Yeah. Um, but didn't get to sit outside a pub this year. Yeah. Didn't get to sit outside and enjoy a bit of banter with people. Didn't get the summer before. Remember we, we got to that stage where you could do that. Yeah. yeah? Something happened this year, didn't it? So it's become a bit more of an enduring thing. So, yeah, I think focusing on where you are there. So I'm really mindful that, you know, I'm at an older stage in life. I'm a, become a bit boring. I don't know if you do that when you get older, but I'm, I'm actually thinking there are, it's now got to be impacting. It's impacting on, on my general health, you know. But, I mean, you, you can see me, but everybody else can't. You know, I've got a beard again now and long hair. I quite like that, but it's only because I haven't been able to go to, I suppose I could phone a, a mobile hairdresser up, yeah, and make them stand outside or open all the windows in the house and wear a face mask. So I could go down that road. But, that, that, you know, the dentist, that's a dream at the moment, but I know I've got cavities. And, you know, one of the things, if you're immune compromised, is you want to try and keep, the outside world closed out of your inner sight, you know, your inside. Opticians, I, I now need new glasses. Um, now, people might think I'm being extreme, and the only reason I'm being extreme at the moment is because I know that I'm in that group that has some of the least protection. You know? um, so if that's happening to my general health, and I'm able to keep fit, I'm able to walk, you know, my chemo dog, uh, my, my companion, up the hills and stay fit. But what about people that haven't? And then the mental health on top of that. But I've got to admit, I'm pretty durable and I'm finding it a bit tough mentally. And I'm mindful now that we really do all need to work together to look at health and well-being and strategies, A, to help people that have now had to isolate and reach out to each other use the support groups, connect with each other again to help each other through this because it's going to be a tough winter. On a positive side, wow. Okay. We've all had the booster. That's given a good reaction, you know, the jabs. That's given a good reaction, but not a wholesome reaction for everybody. But the data is now coming through. The trials have now matured on the targeted therapies that could become available as prophylaxis to you know, in terms of the monoclonal antibody therapies that could be an injection in the bum that lasts for six months to a year if they can come available and they do get prioritised for the immune compromise for those that really do need them. And there's a big drive coming this way at the moment from a campaigning point of view for laws to get together. And hopefully we can do that to make the government aware so that and with the clinical community, they can stratify that so that that might release us. Because it's really hard looking forward, you know, I firmly believe that we have to always have something to work to. So Christmas, that's why people love Christmas, isn't it? That's why people love holidays. That's why you set targets. It's very hard to do it in this climate, you know, because I remember Christmas last year 
you know, I put my tree up and I did all the decorations. I put my outside lights on because I love Christmas and I did it all for me because the reality was that was what it was. So looking forward, it's how do we not lose hope? How can we keep aware, make it aware that this community are, are, are now invisible and are going to have to are having to go through this alone and the families and friends are also struggling through it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Increasingly isolated population, unfortunately. Absolutely. And, and, and circumstances have made things worse because... I'm not going to get political, but, you know, all of the messaging that we went through before now, all of the mixed messaging we had before and all of the confusion caused by all the conflicting information, yeah, that was very hard to deal with. So now we get no information, so we don't have to deal with that information. The problem we've got is nobody understands the challenges. Nobody, and even if you do, there's not a lot you can do about it. That I think one of the worst things is being trapped in a situation that you can't get out of. So you don't know when you turn a corner what's going to be coming around that corner. And I never like shopping because I'm a bloke, you know, so I'm not really missing that. But I, 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 I've always been a bit gregarious, so it, it, it's very difficult. I mean, it's a little bit like prison sentence in a way, isn't it? You know, um, to some degree, self-induced. So how do we all balance this? And that's what we've got to do. You've got to live a little. We need to, with time, we're beginning to find out how at risk we are. The disease that's circulating around us now has seasonal flu with it. It now has, it was on the news yesterday, wasn't it? A couple of birds died in a reservoir down the road from us. You know, avian flu is back again this winter. You know, um, we've always had these things to deal with. So, yeah, I, I don't know what to say, Charlotte. It's a tricky one because I've, how many of us have had to reinvent ourselves? digitally we've got digital connections but that association time this time of the year must be very hard for a lot of people i mean i don't know if we've got any seasonal support groups but christmas is when families come together it's a difficult one because i would now be at a stage where i'd be quite i'm not i'm not that in the dying to you know my daughter's going to come up and we're going to spend our Christmas early this year. But the, the emotional and psychological trauma of all of this is quite hard. Sorry if this is a really heavy chat. No, I'm just... We're trying to look at things from a positive, you know. From, from a positive, it can't go on forever. We've got another summer coming, yeah? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if this bug keeps circulating the way it does and doesn't slow down, then hopefully the treatments will come available that that will help the most vulnerable or theoretically that it will die off a little bit so that levels in the community will drop off a bit next year. But I, I do fear for a lot of my community that people are having to put themselves in harm's way because just the impact of all of this time. You know? That's why we're having the conversation today is to, to remind people that COVID is still impacting on people like yourselves despite everything, yeah. despite uh, external yeah. messages, shall we say, other things yeah. going on. I think we as a community can do, you know, that there are some great peer support groups that go out of their way to reach out for specific groups. One of the things about, you know, why we join charities and why we become advocates is we want to pass forward the work of others and 
and help those that need the help and the information. And that's why those that are newly diagnosed, as, as patients that have been through the mill a few times, we learn something every time. So we go through the same talks time and time after again, because we know of the value and the importance of that. And, and I'm just really mindful now that we've been isolated and unable to support those that need the support and those that are newly diagnosed or coming into this during COVID not able to get as much connection as possible. So how we get to charities and how patients listening to this is just don't be frightened to reach out. The days have changed now, you know, you can be connected with other patients and the help is there. You know, you don't need to be locked away and you don't need to be isolated. But I'm just, it's very hard for people to live with a chronic disease and organically grow in the community and come to terms with that diagnosis. Remember I said to you, it took me two years to become comfortable again in my own skin. God knows what it would be like if I was diagnosed during the pandemic. Mm. And told that I and told that I had a disease, a cancer of the immune system. I'd have gone off the deep end. Yeah, it's great though from an advocacy point of view. Eleven years ago, the levels of information that's you know good information that the charities provide, good support services, peer groups, buddying, phone support groups learning activities, webinars, podcasts. These things didn't really exist then, you know? Yeah, I think about it like this. I feel like the pandemic has given us more ways to reach the people who already know we exist, but has made it harder in some ways for people who don't already know to find us. That's that's how I think. Yeah, that's an interesting one, because we, we looked at the data and we noticed um, when we did our surveys... Uh, support groups globally as well that more people were contacted the charities were contacted by more people both those they knew and the newly diagnosed now was that because people are more isolated and they have less contact through healthcare was that because healthcare now recognize that they haven't got the resources and they, they sign posters. Is that because we're doing a better job as charities and we're able to connect with people? Is it because everybody's become a bit more digitally connected so they know how to find us? We don't know all of the answers to that. But you study a lot of the data. I mean, I do worry about those that diagnose late. I do worry about people that are frightened to connect with their healthcare teams if they're developing issues. You know, we were talking about blokey issues earlier. I don't think blokes, there's just blokes that do that. We're not getting the hands-on care that we had before. We've now got this new, much more hands-off, a little bit feels a little bit sometimes like flying solo. So it does concern me, as well as the mental health, all of these aspects. You know? I don't know what your thoughts are, because that's the area that you champion and you, 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 know, you drive hard. It's a little bit pressing against the wind sometimes, isn't it? You know? um, and I, I find it hard at the moment that the way stats are given have you noticed they've stopped telling you how many people are admitted to hospital, which would give you an indication of how full to capacity hospitals are? The emphasis seems to be a little bit different. Um, and I've, have we become numb? Has society become numb to all of these figures? I don't know. I think there's quite a lot of research as to that the bigger the number, the harder it is to relate to it. So I suppose if it grows and grows and grows, then yeah, mm. that's mm. totally possible. Absolutely. So 
just to go back to the positive thing. So you did, um, you kind of, you, you've talked about how you're thinking, you know, Christmas is probably still going to be quite an isolating one, possibly more so for some people versus last year with everybody else hopefully being allowed to do stuff for Christmas. What is it that people in your community are waiting for exactly to, what would, what would allow you guys to feel less isolated um, and come together a bit more often? Safety, feeling of safety, of being able to be masters and mistresses of your own destiny, not relying on the, the whim of others and fate to get away from the feeling that it's only a matter of time. You know, let's look at it from a point of view. If you're not protected, you can only lock yourself away from the inevitable for so long. And that's, I don't want to scare people by saying that, but that's a feeling that can could be quite oppressively depressing. So, yeah, without a doubt, you know, it, the, the, there have been several trials. I mean, first and foremost, if you're quick-witted and you learn about your disease, empowered patients do better. If you know more about your condition, you can cope with it better and you could be more involved in your own discussions and, and should things happen. So, for example, if you were to contract COVID and you're vulnerable, then there are now treatments available that help improve outcomes, be they antivirals that needed administering within five days of the infection, or be they targeted monoclonals that are available as treatments. And they do help our community, but they're, they're reactive. And the reality of being able to know who to talk to, what to get, and everything else in five days is a bit scary. So there are other studies coming as well at the moment. We know, for example, that if you're on certain treatments, it makes you less able to respond to certain to vaccinations. In the CLL population, we've always known that we've had that issue. Yeah? So constantly, we've got our scientific community working with us, looking at how can they optimise immune responses in patients with, with CLL and other blood cancers. The knowledge is growing. We've all had our third shot. I'm not going to make you laugh and get involved into the booster versus third vaccination. Yeah, depends what it's all called. But we should have all had, I've had two of the regular one and one of the mRNA versions, the third one. Yeah. <laughs> of some kind. Yeah, of some kind, yeah. Um, and that we technically should be offered first a fourth one, um, hopefully before the effect of the third one has worn off, you know. But so all of this is all a bit vague, isn't it? But what we do know is the data's just been released, hasn't it, of um, prophylaxis trials of targeted monoclonals that do work. And the data that comes out of that is staggering when you actually look at their efficacy, that you could have an injection in your bum yeah, that will last for six to 12 months and has virtually reduced the complications or morbidity in all patients that were given that in the, in, in the clinical trials, that immediately then, it would actually probably make me feel safer than I was before COVID. Because now I've become really vigilant about pneumococcus, pneumonia, and, and flu, and we've taken on board habits so that we... We're not going to probably catch those as much as we would do if we were back in society because we're going to be taking precautions, whatever. But 
These are now coming to the fore at the moment, and we need to all get together as communities and collaborate, not just in this country, but globally, internationally, just to raise awareness, because these are no doubt going to be a little bit more expensive than other treatments. They're going to be rationed. I don't recall if it's true, but I seem to remember when this this latest combination of two monoclonals was developed, the government pre-ordered about a million of them, yeah? I don't know what's happened with that. I haven't heard anything about it since then, but they've obviously got to be given to the people that deserve them, not so much deserve them, that need them, you know, to be able... And, and so hopefully that as charities and as patients, maybe we need to start making a bit more noise about what's going on at the moment and not be embarrassed to make more noise about it so that we can actually help our families and help everybody else and we can actually take part in society. But I'm really optimistic. Got summer coming. I mean, come on, summer's only six months away. I know winter hasn't started, but um, summer's only six months away. For me, I'm going to be planting my garden in, 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 in early spring. By then, I'm positively hopeful. I know how hard our scientists are working to really identify who is at risk yeah, with the clinical trials of efficacy of different things and that will help that evidence will be fed into the sausage machine and hopefully uh, that group will be looked up and i believe it will be i believe it will be that people will be able to free up again and yeah this new normal thing remember we everybody was throwing this new normal thing i think as as a cll patient as somebody living with an evolving blood cancer yeah it's a new normal every day yeah so you know it will be a new normal then. You know, we joked about it. Um, and we've had three webinars and each landscape's been totally different than the one before. Absolutely. And hopefully by this time next year, next Christmas, we don't have to talk about Forgotten Shielders. And maybe we can talk about all those other issues that you raised at the beginning of our podcast about the, all the other isolating problems. We've got lots of work well, to do. Maybe, maybe that, that could be a positive, couldn't it? That, that because of... You know, one of the first things we learned, to, you know, I remember actually learning about cancer and the challenges that people with cancer had. And I remember sitting, sort of always being lectured in, in the Macmillan Cancer Support Course. And, you know, you do the, you've got the board up and everybody, uh, you know, it's a workshop and you offer up what the cancer patients feel and everything else. And isolation was was one of the, the key topics came up then. And I, and I, and, and that's what we strive to as charities, yeah? And maybe this will help with a little bit more focus back in that area again. On the positive side, yeah, definitely. I am personally, listen, I, I, I'm not disclosing anything. My own employers as, as blood cancer um, charities, you know, have had a meeting with me saying, when do you think you might be able to be realistically be able to get involved in some of the face for face-to-face capacities that you were so important to be involved with? And my answer to you to that last question is the same one to this one. When these monoclonals do become available to us as a community, we can actually then operate with an element of safety so that we then feel comfortable as well as safe, safe as well as comfortable then it will be easy for me to adjust back into life living with an immune compromised system, knowing that I'm at risk, yeah? Because I will not be at any more risk than I was before COVID. And even if I am, I've now got strategies on board that are really embedded. 
Yeah, but um, we can't throw caution to the wind. That's the other thing I would say is that, you know, you can get bored with things in time and, you you know, you can suddenly make a rash decision that might be the wrong decision that could cause you consequences. So we've got to remain vigilant, but we've got to remain that balanced. And I don't know if I mentioned it in previous webinars, but it's a little bit like, I mean, I was diagnosed 11 years ago and I've gone through many new normals. Yeah, This is a little bit like being diagnosed all the all over again you've been told you've got an immune challenge you don't you know it's serious but you don't know we don't all know how good we are going to be at dealing with the infection should we have it and many of us have had it and we've lost a few and many have recovered so it's going to be it is it's a little bit like a diagnosis again on that note thank you nick for sharing your thoughts and like i said hopefully we won't come round another six months and talk about the same topic again. But if we are, we've got lots no, of I'm awareness raising I'm looking to forward to barbie. I'm looking forward to a good barbecue. <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah, it, it was different. It's been different this year, hasn't it? You know, um, it's been hard for everybody, not just those that are living with conditions that make them vulnerable. You know, society has had a bit of a beating. I don't know what's going to happen. I have a feeling that powers that be might have to tighten a few things up that might help us all come back together again. But I, I would like to just leave this saying that the, the immune compromised community are a little bit forgotten at the moment. And although practiced at being safe, are still very, very vulnerable. And um, whatever we can do, we must do. But the, the other thing is don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. There are many people to connect with. And listen, I'm, I'm, I'm loving being digitally aware at the moment. I'm talking to you on two screens. <laughs> 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 that's, that's a new me, you know? Well, I've graduated. Maybe the next webinar I won't make so many mistakes. You know? <laughs> Nick, thank you for your time today. It's been really helpful. Great, great conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. For more information and support from Leukemia Care, go to our website, leukemiacare.org.uk or call our helpline on 080 88 010 444. See you next month.